You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our ninth lecture is on Catholic social teaching and bioethics or the culture of life versus the culture of death. In our study of social justice, we saw that it is the virtue which directs all the other virtues to the attainment of the common good. Since one of the fundamental elements of the common good is the protection of life, the work for social justice must include efforts to protect life and to promote a culture of life. Catholic social thought has not always recognized that abortion and euthanasia, for example, must be included in the discipline. Therefore, not everyone lists Pope John Paul II's Gospel of Life as one of the social encyclicals, or that the opposition to abortion can be prompted by a love of justice. But things are beginning to change. For example, in their 34th General Congregation, the Society of Jesus, known popularly as the Jesuits, affirmed that the Jesuit mission to promote justice must include the life questions. Quote, human life, a gift of God, has to be respected from its beginning to its natural end. Yet we are increasingly being faced with a culture of death, which encourages abortion, suicide, and euthanasia, war, terrorism, violence, and capital punishment as ways of resolving issues. The consumption of drugs, turning away from the human drama of hunger, AIDS, and poverty. We need to encourage a culture of life, end quotation from the Jesuit statement. This statement, of course, reaffirms the teaching of John Paul II in the Gospel of Life on the importance of promoting a culture of life. The Jesuit statement could eventually be very helpful since many Catholic advocates of social justice don't usually include opposition to abortion and euthanasia on their agenda. When prominent members of the Catholic Church known for their advocacy of social justice as the Jesuits are known, Making a point of including the life questions under the rubric of justice, you know that an important corner has been turned. It is not just abortion, euthanasia, the death penalty, war, terrorism, health questions that fall under the rubric of Catholic social thought, but things like cloning, organ donation, and genetic engineering. In order to offer support for this contention, I will briefly review parts of John Paul's The Second Gospel of Life and Leon Cass's Life, Liberty, and the Defense of Dignity Challenges for Bioethics. First, a brief statement on the law of the land with respect to abortion. Roe v. Wade established abortion on demand as the law of the land. One reading of the Supreme Court's case is that states might impose limitations on access to abortion in the third trimester. Indeed, the court says that the state may prohibit abortion during the seventh, eighth, and ninth months unless the life or the health of the mother is at stake. But the court defined health so broadly to include emotional well-being that in fact there is a right to ab abortion for the whole nine months of pregnancy. Now supporting the right to abortion is seen by many as essential to human dignity. In the words of Professor Gilbert Mylander, abortion has embedded in our public morality the priority of choice. It has taught us to believe that our dignity as moral beings lies not in accepting what may be unwanted and unexpected, 
not in accepting as sheer gifts our own lives and the lives of others, but in being free self-creators who shape our own direction. It is ironic that an age which seeks to recapture our relation to the earth and bids us to tread lightly on this planet should simultaneously encourage us to think of ourselves not as bodies, not as animated earth, but simply as masterful wills." End quote. In order for this mentality to change, both the law and the moras have important roles to play. We have already addressed the role of law in promoting the common good and explained why laws against abortion would serve the common good. Let us now look at some of the arguments John Paul uses in the Gospel of Life to effect the change in the mores by promoting a culture of life and discouraging a culture of death. A review of the Pope's arguments should clearly reveal why the life questions and bioethics are a concern of Catholic social teaching. The Pope begins by describing the problem. An extraordinary increase and in gravity of threats to the life of individuals and peoples, especially where life is weak and defenseless. And then he says, a new cultural climate is developing. Broad sections of public opinion justify certain crimes against life in the name of the rights of individual freedom. Consequently, people want the state to allow such things as abortion and euthanasia. And some sections of the medical profession are willing to justify abortion than to do them. Now, what is the Pope's purpose in writing this encyclical? He says, to convince Catholics and all people of goodwill that life is a great good, to inspire the establishment of a new culture of life for the building of an authentic civilization of truth and love, and to inspire support for the family so that it will remain a sanctuary of life. So much for his introduction. Now let's turn to chapter one entitled, The Voice of Your Brother's Blood Cries to Me from the Ground, Present Day Threats to Human Life. Pope begins by telling the story of Cain's murder of Abel. And he says, you know, that this murder violates the kinship of flesh and blood and the spiritual kinship uniting mankind in one family. Abortion and euthanasia frequently violate the kinship of flesh and blood between parents and children. Another aspect of Cain's murder is this, that it immediately follows the sin of Adam and Eve. John Paul's comment is that man's revolt against God in the earthly paradise is followed by the deadly combat of man against man. What is the significance of the Lord's question to Cain, what have you done? JP too says that reflection on this question could make us aware of the attacks against human life, their causes and their consequences. Just as though the question that God asked Cain made him think, so the question when we read today can maybe make us more aware of what we are doing when we practice euthanasia and abortion. Pope then gives some explanations for regarding the attacks against human life as rights, for the increasing pressure on the state to give legal recognition to these rights, and for carrying out these attacks within the family and the complicity of the family. I can't mention you know, all the explanations that he gives, but I will focus on some of them. For example, he says, there is a profound crisis of culture which generates skepticism in relation to the very foundation of knowledge and ethics. There is a structure of sin which denies solidarity and takes the form of a culture of death. It is possible to speak in a certain sense of a war of the powerful against the weak. He says there is a contraceptive mentality that encourages the pro-abortion culture. Why is that the case? Because 
people with a contraceptive mentality do not expect pregnancy to result, and therefore abortion becomes the backup contraceptive. The attacks on life receive popular support, legal approval, and cooperation on the part of healthcare personnel. And then John Paul says that there's even a conspiracy against life today in, throughout the world. He says that national and international groups try to make contraception, sterilization, and abortion widely available. Now, the human rights teachings that we have are really a two-edged sword. You know, they both protect and attack life precisely in an age when the inviolable rights of the person are solemnly proclaimed, John Paul writes, and the value of life is publicly affirmed, the very right to life is being denied or trampled upon, especially in the more significant moments of existence, the moment of birth and the moment of death. Now, in my mind, the failure of educated Catholics to understand the full meaning of the rights revolution initiated by Hobbes and Locke made it difficult to foresee the bad use to which rights would be put. This leaves you know, when you separate rights from the summum bonum, it leaves rights without a moral guide. Of course, the church has made every effort to persuade people to exercise their rights in the light of the good. But it is hard for this teaching to be effective when the Hobbesian view permeates aspects of the culture. People now are also being killed in the name of dignity. Recall our discussion of dignity in the second lecture. Note the consequences when personal dignity is equated with the capacity for verbal and perceptible communication. In some contexts, the mention of the word dignity really means that someone is going to die. Another explanation Jean Paul gives is that freedom is understood with no connection to truth or solidarity. Freedom becomes absolute autonomy and government becomes the tyrant state because it allows the strong to do away with the weak. And then he mentions the eclipse of the sense of God, which he says leads to a practical materialism which breeds individualism, utilitarianism, and hedonism. Having over being, suffering is rejected as an end to be avoided at all costs, depersonalization of sexuality, the impoverishment of interpersonal relations, the confusion about good and evil. Now what can overcome the attacks on human life and their causes the Pope says, the blood of Christ reveals the depth of the Father's love and the good of human life. How precious man must be in the eyes of the Creator if he gains so great a Redeemer. It's quoting from the Easter Vigil. The blood of Christ further reveals man's greatness in his vocation that he is to give himself in order to be a full human being. Now in chapter 3, entitled, You Shall Not Kill God's Holy Law, the Pope tries to explain why this killing is so serious and tries to persuade people to think twice about it. It begins by saying that man is made in God's image and that the basis of a right to self-defense is really the good of life and the duty to love oneself. Self-defense really can be a duty. John Paul calls the catechism. Legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for someone responsible for another's life, the common good of the family or of the state. It is, of course, better when this can be done without taking anyone's life. With respect to the death penalty, he said, tries to discourage it and says it would only really be good, acceptable, when it is not possible in any other way to defend society. But in his mind, such cases are rare, if not practically non-existent. Of course, this will be 
a judgment call. The Pope makes a formal statement prohibiting the killing of the innocent. I confirm that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. And the reason he gives our sacred scripture tradition, teaching the magisterium and reason itself. He quotes from the Declaration on Euthanasia put out by the Vatican in 1980. Nothing and no one can in any way permit the killing of an innocent human being, whether a fetus or an embryo, an infant or an adult, or an old person, or one suffering from an incurable disease, or a person who is dying. Furthermore, no one is permitted to ask for this act of killing, either for himself or herself, or for another person entrusted to his care, nor can he or she consent to it, either explicitly or implicitly, nor can any authority legitimately recommend such an action. In addressing the subject of abortion, he says he recognizes that it is widely accepted and that this indicates a dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is being more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. He says that abortion is murder, but he recognizes that people do it for health, to maintain a standard of living, and sometimes people believe that it's better if a child is not born into certain situations. And he understands the reasons that people give. He mentions those he thinks are responsible for abortion. He mentions relatives, friends, legislation, administrators of healthcare centers where abortions are performed, advocates of sexual permissiveness, disparages of motherhood, and some international institutions, foundations, and associations. Regarding the justification of abortion, he says some people try to justify it by claiming that the result of conception, at least up to a certain number of days, cannot yet be considered a personal human life. His answer, well, science tells us that life begins with the fertilization of the ovum, granted that the presence of a spiritual soul cannot be ascertained by empirical data. He also mentions the experimentation on human embryos, which kills them, constitutes a crime against their dignity as human beings. Now, I think another way to see that Catholic social thought must address biomedical matters is to look at the work of one of the best and most prominent bioethicists in the country, Leon Katz. You know, he is currently the chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics. His recently published book warns Americans and the rest of the world about the dangers of dehumanization posed by the contemporary biomedical project. A great admirer of the benefits made available to humanity by modern science, Cass has nevertheless come to the conclusion that new scientific developments, if not properly managed and controlled, will most likely lead to the kind of dystopia described by Aljous Huxley in Brave New World. Cass contends that neither scientists nor bioethicists are alert enough to the possibility of willing dehumanization. Seeing the dangers is difficult because in the realm of bioethics, the evils are intertwined with goods we so keenly seek, cures for disease, relief of suffering, preservation of life. He mentions several areas where dangers are present or looming. The legalization of euthanasia, allowing doctors to kill their patients, embryonic stem cell research, cloning, the selling of body parts, genetic engineering, the interests in seeking immortality through science, turning procreation into manufacturing, and even the state of modern biology. Cass notes that our cultural pluralism and easygoing relativism make it difficult to reach consensus on what we should embrace and should oppose. And serious moral objections to this or that biomedical practice 
are often facilely dismissed as religious or sectarian. He is positively dismayed that neither philosophical ethics nor religious ethics is in a state to offer much help. American religious ethicists, with some notable exceptions, are not much help because they tend to use the same language and categories as the philosophical ethicists. Regarding the deeper matters and ultimate concerns that lie just beneath the surface of everyday life, the significance of human finitude or the moral worth of suffering and the meaning of sexuality and procreation, the theoretical and rational approach to ethics has virtually nothing to say. Cassis begins his treatment of cloning sounding like a Catholic moral theologian. He says, thanks to the sexual revolution, we have been able to deny in practice and increasingly in thought the inherent procreative meaning of sexuality itself. But if sex has no intrinsic connection to generating babies, babies need have no necessary connection to sex. Cass goes on to argue that we no longer have a common understanding of family, marriage, sexuality, and the meaning of motherhood and fatherhood. Stable monogamous marriage as the ideal home for procreation is no longer the agreed upon cultural norm. For this new dispensation, the clone is the ideal emblem, the ultimate single parent child. Because of feminism and the gay rights movement, many have come to doubt that marriage between a male and a female is a natural norm, but now believe that it is a cultural construct. Cloning is regarded by many as simply an extension of artificial insemination, donor, and in vitro fertilization. The latter procedures were a slippery slope as critics initially maintained. Cass stands aghast that the profundity of human procreation is no longer sufficiently appreciated. It is not just the result of our rational wills. It is a more complete activity precisely because it engages us bodily, erotically, spiritually, as well as rationally. Without appreciating this fact, people do not shudder at the prospect of manufacturing babies. Whether we know it or not, and as we are well on the way to forgetting it, the severing of procreation from sex, love, and procreation is inherently dehumanizing, no matter how good the product. Cass gives four reasons why cloning is dehumanizing. First, coming up with a cloning technique that doesn't produce a handicapped, deformed, or retarded human being would require unethical experiments. If only three to four percent of the attempts to clone animals succeeded, then it is likely that many, many children would be sacrificed for the sake of scientific progress. Cass concludes, we cannot ethically find out whether or not human cloning is feasible. Secondly, successful cloning would create serious issues of identity and individuality. For example, because his genotype has already existed, people will expect the clone child to live his life like the original. Wouldn't there be a lot of pressure to turn out a certain way? If the child is a clone of his mother or father, then he will have a special relationship with that parent. What if the parents get divorced and mom can't stand the sight of the child who is a clone of her former husband? Throughout his book, Cass makes much of the third reason he puts forth to show that cloning is dehumanizing. Human cloning would also represent a giant step toward the transformation of begetting into making, of procreation into manufacture, literally making by hand, a process that has already begun with in vitro fertilization and genetic testing of embryos. Cass is repulsed by the prospect of people paying big money to get the right genes. The artifices will stand above the child they are planning to make. In human cloning, scientists and prospective parents adopt a technocratic attitude toward human children as their artifacts. 
Such an arrangement is profoundly dehumanizing, no matter how good the product. Cass' fourth argument against cloning is that it would enshrine and aggravate a profound misunderstanding of the meaning of having children and of the parent-child relationship. Cloning is inherently despotic, for it seeks to make one's own children after one's own image, or an image of one's choosing, and their future according to one's will. Cass notes that some parents already abuse their children by trying to live their lives through the successes of their children. Cloning will enable parents to behave even more tyrannically, but things won't be any better if their choice of genes doesn't work out as planned. Parents will have guilt feelings, and children will have grudges against their parents for their poor choice of genes. Parents who clone will have difficulty appreciating that their children aren't their possessions or their projects, but unique individuals who should have the freedom to make their way in the world. Their genetic distinctiveness and independence are the natural foreshadowing of the deep truth that they have their own never-before-enacted life to live. Now, with respect to organ donation, Cass worries that the way this practice is justified may eventually lead to the sale of body parts. Quote, it looks as if to facilitate and justify the practice of organ donation, we have enshrined something like the notions of property rights and free contract in the body, notions that usually include the possibility of buying and selling. This is slippery business. Once the principle of private right and autonomy is taken as the standard, it will prove difficult, if not impossible, to hold the line between donation and sale." End quote. Throughout his book, Cass raises questions about the way rights and autonomy are understood these days. In this context, if rights entitle people to make a gift of their organs, they would also authorize selling them. Cass draws the logical conclusion that rights are used as a battering ram to destroy America's moral and religious traditions because they are often understood as having no intrinsic connection to the good. Now, Cass is able to make this kind of generalization because of his knowledge of political philosophy. He understands the history of rights talk from Hobbes and Locke to the present day. It becomes clear from reading his book that bioethicists need a knowledge of political philosophy to do their work. Now, with respect to genetic engineering, Cass sounds several warnings. Genetic engineering will, first of all, deliberately make changes that are transmissible into succeeding generations and may alter in advance future individuals through direct germline or embryo interventions. Second, genetic engineering may be able, through so-called genetic enhancement, to create new human capacities and new norms of health and fitness. Practitioners of prenatal diagnosis already tell prospective parents that they should abort if the unborn child has this or that genetic abnormality. In other words, some genetic defects make persons unworthy of life. Still another difficulty posed by genetic technology will be the blunting of aspiration and achievement in those who believe that their genetic endowment 
has already determined their future. Well, these are just a few thoughts from Cass's book, Life, Liberty, and the Defense of Dignity. I would encourage everyone to follow Cass's chairmanship of the President's Council on Bioethics. That commission has already published a book on cloning. The majority have come out against it, as has Cass, but the minority have given arguments for it. That's available on the web, but it's also available in written form as well. But the committee continues to meet and will discuss other important biomedical subjects. But I hope from this review of John Paul's Evangelium Vitae and the book by Cass that we are able to clearly see you know, why these life questions really must be addressed by Catholic social teaching. You know, if Cass is right that we are in danger of dehumanizing ourselves if we embrace cloning or genetic engineering, I mean, that should be sufficient to show that Catholic social teaching simply cannot leave these questions unaddressed. In our next lecture, we will turn to just war theory, and we'll see what Catholic social thought really has to say to governments about the conduct of war. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.